You're listening to the Comic Book Informer Podcast with Raj and me. For everyone from comic nerds to comic noobs, you know who you are. Now here's your host, Raj. Hello and welcome to the Comic Book Informer Podcast. This is Roger coming to you on Thursday for episode number 90. Fantastic episode. Uh, but we are a day late. Actually, we're even about 45 minutes late from normal. And Vince, I know you're rolling your eyes right now listening to this, but on both counts, it actually is not my fault. So all of those vile things you were going to call me, you can call my daughter right now because it's her fault. Justifiably, but still, wasn't my fault. So Sarah, with that, welcome back to the show. Thanks. <laughs> Glad to be back. Yes. And... um. This episode, we were actually going to be doing our catch-up on what's been going on with the Uncanny X-Force. We actually read through everything, and uh, both Sarah and I have been absolutely loving the story arcs that are going on right there. It's absolute insanity, but it's so bloody good. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to do something a little bit different this episode. Now, if you listened to last week, where we covered the Keyleaf comics, some of that caused a little bit of a stir here and there. <laughs> and so we were having some interesting conversations. But what happened is that we got to talking with James Ninus. Ninus, we'll get that figured out after. And what I found out is that James has got a bloody fantastic outlook on what a writer should feel when somebody critiques their work. And as I've often said and feel, it's far better to be stubborn than sensitive when you are a writer because it's a subjective media. Everybody's going to tell you what they feel, luckily, if, if you're lucky, I should say. And that's good because you use that as fuel to then drive you forward to do something better with your craft. And that's exactly what I found from James. Now, it was enough to actually be so impressed with him that I thought, you know what? Let's actually have him on the show. Let's talk about his involvement, not just with Keyleaf, but with comics in general and where he'd like to be with them. And I thought it would make a, a, an interesting episode. Also, his chance to rebuttal anything we said, because again, we're not so full of ourselves that we won't change our minds about different things. So James, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad I uh, glad I could make it. Yeah. Now, okay, before we even start, Ninus, Ninus? Ninus, you had it right Ninus. the first time. Uh, right. Yeah, at least at least you guys didn't do Ninus. I actually get that a lot, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate the Ninus or the Ninus. I got a French name that everybody butchers, so I'm used to it. <laughs> so what has been your experience with comic books in terms of, like, when did when did you start reading them? Was it an early age and you kept at it? Oh, no, I'm such a late bloomer. I, I, I am... I am sadly uh very new to the medium really uh, i actually picked up right around the time i was finishing college six years ago okay um up to that point i'll be completely honest with you i thought they were kind of nerdy right uh, but not in the cool way nerdy is cool now um it just wasn't my thing didn't dig superheroes didn't dig comic books watched some x-men cartoons and some batman animated series but uh but never picked up the books um and it wasn't until a friend of mine uh actually gave me books like sandman and preacher right. And Why the Last Man and uh, Planetary, that really kind of pulled me in and, and showed me that there's more to comics than just suits. Exactly. Yeah. And see, the opinion I've always had is that a good story is a good story, regardless of what medium it's written in. And so, like, in terms of comic books, there have been, let's be honest, a lot of stories that are fairly superficial and not that good. But then when you're talking about stuff that you just mentioned, like, I just plowed through all of uh, Why the Last Man not that long ago. I had actually not read it at the time because 
because I had about 25 years there where I was not reading comic books either. And um, why The Last Man? You're reading that and you're realizing again, like, there's just so much good that you can do with the medium or Joe the Barbarian, different things like that, the cape. So it doesn't just have to be the men in tights kind of thing. So then I'm assuming, though, of course, having studied writing and being interested in writing enough to go to school for it, though, that you were a heavy reader. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was I was big into novels in college. I studied a lot of the beatniks, actually. It was right. kind of a hippie. Um, but it was always short stories and novels. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't until, like I said, the end of college when when graphic novels even became a viable form of telling a story to me. Um, up to that point, it was it was strictly you know, prose, um, some poetry, but mainly just prose. So then what was the turning point? Was it somebody who said, listen, Funny enough, read it was this. a job offer. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> I, I, I studied strictly short story. Um, I mean, I did a little novel writing, but, but really my emphasis in college was short story. And Ben, um, who was best man at my wedding, really good friend, college roommate, got an offer to work with Semantic and hit me up and said he wanted me to work on some comic books. And of course I said, no, because um, I can't draw. And then he laughed at me and said, I know you can't draw. I don't want you to draw. Um, <laughs> and we, we started talking about ideas. And he gave me some books to read. And uh, that, that's what started it all. Meat Boy was the first thing I wrote. Um, the first 12 issues, I think, were written in a year. Um, it took a while to kind of get, get started. Um, and then it just kind of took off. I, I started thinking of all these different ideas and concepts and just trying to put everything down into comics uh, so much that actually at the beginning of this year, I had to kind of take a step back and go back to, to narrative, to prose, uh, short stories and novels. But, but I find myself keep continually coming back to comics to keep writing them. Well, there's something about the comics too that appeals to writers because you're able to tell uh, a complete story arc in such a small time frame. I mean, the time that it takes for you to write a good short story, having written and then rewrite all the drafts and everything, or even a novel where it's even more work, it's a large chunk of your life taken up for that. Whereas with a comic book, you can hone a story very sharply and it takes a lot less time. And then you still have this fantastic story that's now out of you and it's on right. paper and you have it and you can move on. No, that's, that's totally true. And, and to be completely honest, after I got into comics, I realized that there's some stories that really need to be comics. Right. Um, I'm a firm believer that, that stories, stories are best served with a particular medium. I don't think all books can be movies and movies can be comic books and, sure. and you know, mixing it up. Um, something like Mithoi, where, where it's such high fantasy and, and, and just so much going on, as a TV show or a movie, it, it would be impossible. There's no way you're going to do that in two hours. Um, even as a book, uh, it's, it's going to be a tough sell. Um, so so some, of the, some of the stuff just lends itself to that artistic format a little bit better than other mediums. And, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, definitely. No, it allows you a lot of freedom to do things that otherwise you wouldn't able, be able to do. And then it, de it depends also on who you are with in terms of publishers and in terms of just how far they'll let you go. How long is your leash essentially and what you can play with? I mean, if you get your dream job writing for Marvel or DC kind of thing, there's a lot of rules in terms of what sure. you can do. Whereas if it's a creator-owned kind of place, then you've got a lot of free reign to do what you would like with your IPs. Yeah, and I've been I've been spoiled. Um, I think the fact that Ben was was a friend before a coworker, I guess, right, uh, was a blessing and a curse. I mean, it was great because I came in and I said I want to write this, and he said okay, 
Um, and then, you know, first a couple issues of Methoid came out and we, we got various reviews. Some were great, some weren't great. And we had to go back and I said, okay, Ben, maybe, maybe don't tell me yes all the time. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you need to pull back the reins a little bit. Because Ben's been reading comics since he was like five. You know, Ben, he knows the medium. How about you tell people who Ben is and what he actually does? Yeah, ben, ben, uh, Benjamin Glybert is actually the current owner of Keyleaf Comics. Before, he was working for Symantec as the director of publishing. But Symantec was owned by another company called Sandbox. Well, Sandbox has kind of gone away. And so Ben, in an effort to preserve the properties, preserve the talent, uh, bought everything that Symantec was putting out all the IPs, all the contracts, and started Keyleaf so that they could continue. Okay. So Ben is now not just the boss, but the owner of Keyleaf Comics. And he actually owns the IPs, or are the the creators owning their own IPs? It's it's kind of a funky program. It's kind of like a lease. Uh, ultimately, the creators still own their IPs. Okay. I mean, I, I will always own Methoy and Heavens and Dust and Drace yeah. Gray. Um, but there are certain clauses in the contract where, you know, if, if someone wants to make a movie of Dust... Ben's going to get a piece of that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's, so it's, it's kind of like Image, but there's a little bit more. And I think it's not always going to be that way, but because it is a startup, um, certain concessions have to be made by mo- both parties. Um, and I, I think a lot of the contracts and the new talent, like they've got four or five new books they're announcing with different writers and different artists in the next year and that are going to have completely different contracts and agreements than I had. Right. Uh, it's just, you know, the company has to grow. And, and starting in comics, I'm sure you know, it's, it's hard. It's oh, hard yeah. to get a foothold. Well, it's a hard time right now, too. Not only has it always been difficult for a smaller pl- press to do anything, but especially now when you're looking at it being a digital medium where you're seeing the big boys also now understanding how, the importance of the, um, the tablet versions. And then, of course, you're dealing with all of the piracy via the torrent sites kind of thing. It's a very tough time right now to be putting up, uh, starting up a new company, let alone trying to be putting out a multitude of uh, titles as well. Oh, absolutely. I think that was that was one of the things that actually drew me to working with Ben. Uh, he knew from the get go that he could not afford to put out print. He wants to, but there was just no way. Yeah. Uh, building that kind of capital and getting those books out there is is nigh impossible for a startup especially when you want to have, you know, he knew coming out the gate that he wanted more than one book. Um, a lot of startup small press, they have a single property and they have to really put a lot of hopes and dreams on that one book. And um, luck. But, but it makes sense. I mean, it's expensive. It's expensive yeah. to keep those going. Uh, but Ben went completely digital and a lot of that overhead kind of went away. And that's a smart thing too, because when you're looking at, again, the, the setting up actual paper copies, you're looking at going through the same publisher and the same, or like uh, the, the, the people that are also doing the distributing, which is basically one company that does most of the distributing across the country kind of thing. You're looking at it being very, very difficult for them to choose to put your comic on the shelf versus the known Marvel or DC. And now to a certain degree, image as well, especially with the walking dead kind of thing. Um, but yeah, to be able to muscle your way into that is very difficult. That said though, again, when you're looking at what you can do digital now, not having to worry about the cost, the insane cost of print, there is still some money to be made as long as both the writers and the artists, like you said too, are willing to make some concessions. Absolutely. And, well, and it's, it's a total catch-22. I mean, now, after, God, I guess it's, it's going to be four years here pretty soon, um, you can only grow so far without the help of the retailers. 
um, Ben knows retailers. I mean, they're the the lifeblood of the comic industry. If you don't have retailers that like you, you're just there's going to be a, a ceiling you're going to hit, and you're not going to get that growth that you really need. So, yeah. it's kind of finding that fine line between okay, well, we do digital, and we definitely write for the trade, but we have to write for the trade because we need those trades to get to retailers. Um, but it's hard to even do that because you know you're trying to ask a retailer to buy a trade where the single issues have only been available digital. So they kind of have to betray their, their business to find out if they want to buy that trade. So there's a lot of hurdles. I mean, it's, it sounds on paper like it's a great way to start and make money. Um, oh, no. It's, but they're definitely hurdles. <laughs> there's a lot of logistical problems, too. Like when you're talking about the retailers, too, at that point, they're putting a lot of faith that what they're being told in terms of sales, listen, it did this well in, in digital. Those numbers are a little bit easier to fudge than paper ones where they can prove how many went to different shops and all that. So there's a lot yeah. of faith that you have to have in the comic company that, yeah, they actually legitimately did this well. Well, if DC New 52 taught us anything, it's that those markets aren't necessarily the same. That's right. Uh, we can go to a retailer and say, hey, we sold you know several thousand copies of this. And they could say, great, none of those people shop here. You know, uh, how do I know that my my people are going to pick up your book? And they're right. It's and it's totally not just that. Market. That's that's how many were put in the stores. That's not how many sold either. That's the thing, too. Right. Again, with DC's 52, they were like, just send us back the copies and you get a full refund. So, of course, the numbers were so inflated. It was unbelievable. Right. Right. It's 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 tough. And, you know, one of the I like that they give away the actual PDF. Uh, you know, you mentioned piracy. And, and I think for a lot of small press guys where they invest everything in the print piracy is huge it kills them uh for key leaf it's a little different uh we're definitely not supporters of piracy we all want to get paid for the work we're doing having said that we're so small at this point we actually make money off of piracy people spread the word about the yep. books and then we've had people come to shows and buy the trades yep and they've said we, we read all your digital stuff you know illegally we're like oh that sucks and then they give us 20 bucks for a book so it just depends. Well, the thing, too, is that it, was, it wasn't that long ago. And I, damn, I wish I could remember who it was. But uh, it was one of the creators who said, you know what? They don't have a problem with piracy because it means, listen, you don't have enough to buy it, money to buy it. Fine. Here it is. Take it for free. Tell some people. And it's that free advertising that you're getting through word of mouth because of that that then brings other people that would give you money for you to be able to maintain the business. So it's not always a bad thing. I mean, yeah, on paper, when you're looking at it, of course, it's morally wrong. But in, in terms of what it can do for the business, it's a hit or miss. Sometimes it actually works in your favor, like you were just saying. Oh, yeah. Pirates, pirates talk. And, and you know, I, and I could see how DC and Marvel, different situation. Totally, completely. I get that. Um, I can only speak for Keyleaf. And I'll tell you right now, at this point, any any word of mouth is great. Yeah, um, I'm okay with anybody hearing about us anywhere, anyhow. And uh, you know, pirates are a verbal people. Yeah, I, I wish again there was somebody else as well that was saying that um, all they did for theirs, they offer them all free on the site, and all they did is at the end of each issue, they put an advertisement saying, "If you like this, then go to this site and you can pick up a copy and help support us." And he said that the torrent places were actually not removing that page when they were retorrenting it. They'd left it in there. <laughs> and because of that, now it's spread. And so they had this free advertising 
in all of these torrented versions that went out. So it actually worked very much in their favor. You can tell we're not prepared for this episode. We just decided this on the fly yesterday because I don't have all the names of, of these people. But yeah, that, that was quite good. Now, in terms of these comics that you pitched, like what was the pitch that you were giving, Ben, then for these, um, the, the series that you're putting out? Give us a rundown on what your plans were for them and what they are now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to sit here and tell you I had some some intellectual epiphany for something like Mithoi. Um, the truth of the matter is Ben and I talked about comics. I kind of shrugged them off. Uh, and that night I actually had some drinks with some friends and someone was talking about a vampire book or novel and I laughed at him. And, you know, of course, I was a literary snob and I was like, oh, those aren't real. <laughs> um, and then I came up with the idea. I was like, you know, what if every mythology, every mythology, every folklore, everything was true? Everything. All of it had actually happened, and what would our world look like right now? And kind of laughed and passed out, and the next morning, the more I thought about it, uh, the more I was like, you know, this might not be such a terrible idea for a comic. It might actually work. Uh, pitched it to Ben. I didn't even have characters, didn't have a story. Um, pitched it to him, and he liked it. He liked the concept. Obviously, the story had to work itself out. Um, and one of the things Ben told me from the get-go is that these books have to be limited. There are no ongoings at Keyleaf or Symantec at the time. So uh, me, not understanding what a commitment I was making, I actually pitched the Mithoi as a 60-issue book. Oh, my God. And in, oh, yeah. And in my head, I was like, oh, this will be easy. I'll do this tomorrow. Yeah, really? Um, this will be five yeah, years thought, worth of like work. I said, I was an idiot. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but, you know, what happened is we put out the first one, and um, it got, like I said, destroyed. So, so Ben came back, and, and it was at Long Beach, actually. Uh, Long Beach, like three years ago, Long Beach Comic Con. And we got it in the hands of, like, Mark Wade and Doug Menke and Joel Gomez. And now I know who these people are, but at the time, they were just dudes. They were just guys, you know, standing there. Um, we got them to look at the books, and they all kind of said the same thing. You know, the story's kind of funky. Uh, the pacing's not right. Uh, your art is subpar. Um, and that was actually the birth of the Zero Issues. That was why we came up with the Mithoi Birth series. And you notice, like, in Trace Gray and Sydney and Adams, there are all those issues zeros, and those are free. Right. And so we went back and we said, okay, well, we'll give out free issues and go on. But, but the pitches were, were me coming up with ideas and characters, and Dust was, was nothing but a nod to the Westerns my dad liked uh, and made me watch growing up. Um, Heavens was, was based strictly on the uh, Zodiac calendar. Um, actually, each issue goes in order. So issue one takes place and is actually the mythological story behind the sign of Ares. Um, thus, like, uh, like I know you mentioned your podcast, like the evil stepmother. That's actually in the mythology, uh, not something I created. Um, the name is Zeus, and I changed that to Suze. Um, so a lot of those, that story is, is 12 issues long and each one will tell the isolated mythology of the astrological signs while telling a 12 issue narrative overall. Um, just, just different concepts, man, different ideas, different, you know, you're, you're walking around and you get this clever something, or at least you think it's clever and you try to turn it into some kind of narrative. And you've got how many on the go right now? Oh Lord. With Keyleaf, uh, I'm working on. Mithoi, Trace Gray Heavens, Dust. I've got another book uh, hopefully coming out next year, and I'm working on an anthology book that's not yet announced that is with three other writers and 20 artists that'll be coming out uh, next October. Um, and then I'm working on actually a couple pitches for uh, Image and Oni and Archaea right now. Oh, nice. Anything that yeah, you can talk the wings about? Yeah, not yet. Uh, I can tell you, you know, I'm working with, I did a Kickstarter on one, and I'm working with this, this artist, Chris Burkhart in uh, Arizona, 
And another one, I'm working with artist Joel Gomez, who actually just finished up the background work on Detective Comics. Right. And he did some stuff for uh, The Authority um, under Jim Lee. So I'm working with him on a book and, um, you know, another one with Kevin from Methoy. Then we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully we get picked up and out in 2013, 2014. Nice. Very nice. Are you finding that you're finding it a lot easier to get the proper pacing for the comics now as opposed to before? Like you've got your you, you feel you're getting the experience under your belt? Oh, 100 percent, man. It, the thing is, Heavens, Dust, um, actually all the books except for Drace Gray. But Methoy, Heavens, and Dust, I actually finished all those scripts that are out right now over two years ago. Right. Um, the newest arc of Methoy, I just finished at 13 through 18. I think, personally, it's a drastic improvement um, in terms of just telling that story through comic. Right. And uh, Drace Gray, I wrote about a year ago. I finished that one after getting some weight under my belt. Um, yeah, you know, it takes time. And it's actually a great advantage of working with a company like Keyleaf. Um, you know, if I had my first break at DC, that could be it. That could be, they don't, I don't think there's generous with a learning curve. No. That said though, like how many people are you working with that can give you enough, um, critical, not just analysis, but help with your scripts? Is it mainly only Ben that you're working with or is there anybody else there that's also, uh, that you're working with? No, you know, at first it was Ben. Um, because he knew comics, but Ben is not a writer. Yeah. Uh, you know, he knows, he, he would read the scripts and I think he would visualize what it could be on a page. Right. And say yes. Um, and obviously the tricky part about comics is there's an artist. It's not just a writer. Yeah. Um, and things change, you know. Um, so, so working with Ben was, was okay. But like I said, there was a point at which it was, hey, Ben, we need to, you need to tell me no more. Um, lately, I've, I've been very fortunate in the last two or three years to, to meet with some different established writers, um, people who, you know, will look at my stuff and give me more uh, solid, hard-nosed feedback. I actually work with a group of writers now um, that we're working on that anthology who are all established, um, not in comics, but established storytellers in film or theater. Uh, one has like a PhD in, I don't know, medieval literature or something. So it's just... Working with these different people, you kind of take what you can from everybody and continue to evolve as an artist, as a writer. And where did you study writing? I went to Cal State Long Beach. Right. I got my degree in uh, creative writing from Cal State Long Beach, right. which probably explains the beatniks because there's a <laughs> lot of hippies. Yeah. So the dream was always writing, though. Absolutely, man. I, I think my parents were less happy about that. Um, there was never an illusion that there would be uh, fame and fortune found. Uh, but my whole life has been about writing and stories and I've eaten them up from a very young age, uh, just all of it, everything I could get my hands on. Yeah. And now that you're spending this much time in the comics though, are you still working on novels and other pieces or is it mainly just the comics at this point? Yeah. Well, I, I, in January or no, excuse me, April of this year, I made the conscious decision to stop writing comics for a few months and try my hand at short stories again. Um, I just finished and sent off to a couple editors uh, this fifth and sixth short stories, and I'm going to release them uh, on my own uh, through Barnes & Noble and Amazon right. um, as, as a collection. So there will be six short stories coming out um, probably mid-September, um, just to see how that does and see if I can actually still write a short story, um, test the waters a bit, but I don't want to just write comics. I mean... I would love to write comics forever, um, 
But if I had to give you an example, I think someone like Neil Gaiman has the perfect yeah. job. Yeah. Where he can do the comics, he can do short stories, he can do you know, films and novels and, and really whatever he wants. And, and that would be the ideal dream for me, I guess. Well, there's a lot of guys who are doing that too, like Joe Hill as well. And there's a lot of guys that are doing both sides, whichever it is that they want. Like when you're looking at how much work that you're putting into those IPs that you're working on currently, how much free time do you actually have to be doing other writing? Because that can take quite a while to work on that many comic series. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and the, the thing I think with, a, with an independent company like Keyleaf, um, I mean, these books come out bi-monthly. Uh, most of these artists that we're working with have other jobs. Yeah. I mean, none of these guys are doing art full time. Um, so what ends up happening is I have to have a lot of these arcs done year or so before the art even starts um, or a year before the book comes out. Um, I mean, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. So what ends up happening is I have, you know, Mytho 1 through 12 done. I have all of Dust done. Heavens is completely written. And Drace Gray 1 through 6 is finished. Um, so now as those continue to come out, I kind of can take a step back and oh, I'm going to work on some short stories or another comic idea or whatever. Um, but it definitely makes it interesting when, when those books come out and you're like, holy crap, I forgot I wrote that. Or, <laughs> I forgot I did that thing. You know, sometimes it's great. And other times you're like, oof, oof, I would have done something different there. Right. In all your series, you do have a handful of artists working on them did you have a big play in the style in the mediums or did you just turn it over to them and let them let them play with the storylines sort of i actually had a hand in getting them the job but i did not have a direct hand in the way they produced the comic so you know people like uh, john narcomi for dust um john john has a very distinct art style and, and i actually think you could say that about all the guys at uh, at keyleaf None of these guys are what I guess you would call mainstream artists. Um, so I would find a style I like that maybe fits with the theme of the book. And then when Ben would hire them, that kind of came out of my hand. He actually has editors that deal directly with how the art is put in the book. And did you see the comics then after they'd been released? You got to look at them as full pieces or did you get to see them and review them as they were being, as they were being drawn and created? It depended, to be honest. I mean, someone like someone like John, to stick with that example, he finishes the books about two days before they come out. So then they got to get lettered and they go to the designer. Uh, there's not a whole lot of time for me to have any input. Um, but then you've got books like Mythoi where, uh, or The Heavens, where sometimes the art is done ahead of time. Other times, I mean, I'm sure a lot of independent publishers deal with this, where the book artistically is done the day before it's supposed to be coming out. So you end up pulling all-nighters or, or your letterers are pulling all-nighters and designers just to make sure it can go out. And there are times I don't see it until it's available for public consumption. Um, sometimes I'm elated and other times I'm like, oh, man, you know, bummer. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it'd be nice if you would have a little bit more of a collaboration with the artist. But again, there's concessions to be made when you're small press. Absolutely. And, and that's just you, you have to trust your artist. You know what I mean? A lot of the things I learned early on was I had to get artists in the door that I could I could trust because the bottom line is no comic writer ever gets a, a book that looks exactly the way he thought it was going to look oh, no. when he wrote. Um, so a lot of my recommendations to Ben when hiring people are, even if this is different than what I want, it's going to have the tone of the story, the tone I'm going for. Okay. So what kind of stuff are you reading right now then? Um, actually, I just picked up a bunch of books at Comic-Con. Um, I, I started a novel, Necronomicon, um, that I'm reading, or yeah, no, 
Yes. Now I think <laughs> I'm hearing the name of that book. I'll look it up while I keep talking. But at Comic-Con, I bought um, the new Joe Hill book, uh, Lock and Key, Volume right. 5. I picked up Enormous from Image. I picked up Sweets from Cody Chamberlain. Um, I got uh, Queen Crab and Monolith from Palmiotti. And, oh, I got the new Parker book from Darwin Cook. Nice. Nice. So you are staying away from a lot of the mainstream stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I like to pretend like I'm super indie, but I'll, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, man. I have a, I have a super crush on uh, Remender's X-Force right oh, now. Oh, dude. <laughs> I, I'm so in love with that thing. And, and there, there, are, there are actually a lot of books uh, that I enjoy from Marvel and DC. I would love to write some of those characters someday. Uh, well, it's one of those so. things, too, that in the right hands, it's not about men in tights. It, it's still a drama about these people kind of thing. Like we saw that, especially with the, the, the reboot of Captain America kind of thing, that you can have something that's very poignant and very well written. That's not just about a guy in tights. It's about the man and everything that he went through. So there are some dreams, jobs that you certainly could have at the, the big two to, to, if you wanted them kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved uh, what was it? All-Star Superman. Right. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, that was a great book, and I think that might have been, other than Red Sun, Malar's run, the only Superman book I really, really, truly loved. Um, yeah, so, he's... you know, they're out there. I, I, can't, I can't say that I'm totally hardcore, <laughs> independent only, but it, te- it does tend to eat up a lot of my time. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to bounce into the what uh, we're not going to actually go into what we've been reading. We'll just talk about what's came up this week. We've got uh, Avengers Assemble number six. We got Captain America number sixteen. We got Captain America and Iron Man six thirty five. Daredevil's annual number one. Which if you've been enjoying the stuff that has been going up on in that reboot, there you go. Uh, Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe number two is out. Like I said, number one, I wasn't all that crazy about, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they're gonna if it gets better. Fantastic Four six oh nine. Dude, stuff with Fantastic Four right now has been so good. Definitely worth a pickup. We've got the brand new Gambit number one, which I'm really hoping Vince likes this a lot because he doesn't want to. And as it is, I know he already liked Hawkeye number one. So if if this happens, it's basically the apocalypse. The world is coming to an end. We got uh, Incredible Hulk number 12, New Avengers 29, Space Punisher number two, Spider-Men number four, which... That's been so fantastic. Venom number 22, Wolverine 311, and X-Men Legacy 271. On the IDW side, we've got Magic the Gathering, the Spell Thief number one. I picked up, or sorry, number two. I picked up number one, but I haven't had a chance to read it. But I'm such a huge Magic fan that I'm really looking forward to seeing what this is going to be like. On the DC side, we've got all the number 12s from Batgirl, Batman, Batman and Robin, uh, Deathstroke, Demon Knights, Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, Grifter number 12, uh, Legion Lost, Resurrection Man, Suicide Squad, and Superboy. And then we've got uh, Batman Arkham, Unhinged number 5, and before Watchmen, Ozymandias number 2. So with that, we are going to call it a wrap for this episode. I would like to thank James very, very much for popping by to shoot the breeze about his involvement with Keyleaf and his IPs and everything from there. So again, thanks very much for coming by, James. I appreciate it. 
No, thanks for having me. And by the way, it's Cryptonomicon. I figured it out. So I didn't sound <laughs> too stupid. Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson is what I'm reading right now. We'll but yeah, splice no, that. Thanks for there. having me, guys. No problem at all. Sarah, again, thanks for popping by. You didn't have much to prep for this episode, but it was sprung on you, and that's why. Next week, we are, however, doing our Uncanny X Force recap, which is going to be fantastic because, well, like James said, too, it's just so bloody good right now. It's going to be a lot of fun to shoot the breeze about that. So, again, if you need to see the show notes, it's at com. Bookinformer.com. We are on Twitter at CB Informer. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to Roger at Comic Book Informer. If you'd like to say hi to Vince, send it to Vince at uh, Comic Book Informer. With that, we'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>